Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, apologies for my slightly late um, arrival. Um, I'm delighted to welcome you all to the LSE um, at what is the first academic uh, event of the Middle East Centre uh, in the school. I thought I'd just, um, before uh, handing you over uh, to the people who are really going to say something interesting, to just to give you a little bit of background to the Middle East Centre, we've thought for some time at the school that we lacked a focal point for our work on the Middle East. As you know, a lot of LSE academics have in the past and now worked on politics, economy, development, uh, indeed oil, everything else related to the Middle East. Uh, but it's fair to say that we haven't had a, a centre. Uh, Fred Halliday, of course, uh, in the past uh, was a kind of whole centre in himself um, <laughs> and uh, somehow perhaps concealed uh, the absence of a proper structure to think about the affairs of the region. And so uh, for some time we've been trying to uh, pull together um, a group of academics here um, and also to find ways of expanding our reach, our thinking, our research on Middle Eastern matters. And we were uh, delighted uh, to find in the Emirates Foundation a very enthusiastic partner uh, in this endeavour. And I'm delighted to see uh, Peter Cleves and a couple of members of the Emirates Foundation here who will wave at you, uh, <laughs> who are up from, uh, from Abu Dhabi. And um, they uh, have agreed to uh, support us, uh, and also an alumnus of ours based in uh, Dubai, Arif Nakfi, uh, has also supported uh, the project uh, generously. And we hope that uh, over time we will attract uh, other supporters for particular strands of work uh, under the aegis of the centre. Uh, we were also uh, delighted to be able to recruit uh, Farwas Gerges, who is uh, over in the uh, corner, uh, to direct uh, the centre. Um, and he has grouped around him a number of people from different parts of the school whose research focus is on Middle Eastern issues uh, broadly. So we are uh, up and running. Uh, we will, in due course, have a, a larger advisory board and we'll have a celebration and a dinner to mark uh, that very soon. Uh, but we wanted to get going with some academic uh, panels and some academic uh, debates. Now, of course, given what's happened in the last two weeks, uh, it is barely necessary for anyone to stand up now and explain why the Middle East uh, is a rather interesting area uh, to think about. Uh, clearly, many of the fixed points in the Middle East uh, have been overturned in the last few weeks. Uh, I was in Egypt myself in the middle of December, and I would like to be able to tell you that I came back saying this regime can't last. Um, but uh, I fear I did not, uh, though I did have an interesting conversations with people about the last elections and the way they had been, uh, results had been manipulated, perhaps over-manipulated in retrospect. But undoubtedly there are things uh, happening uh, in the Middle East which many clever people will say, well of course we could have seen this happening, uh, though they didn't perhaps mention it at the time. 
so we are in very difficult and rather interesting uh, territory, I think, at the moment. But what we hope that the centre will do is uh, to bring uh, objective research to bear from many different perspectives. Uh, we hope that we will conduct our debates with balance, uh, with uh, civility and in a rational environment, not always easy to do uh, when the Middle East uh, is on the table. Uh, but I'm sure that uh, today uh, we have a panel who is well, which are, all of whom are well able to do that. Um, we have Hassan Hakimian in the chair, uh, and we have Mohammed Ayub from Michigan, who will speak, and Patrick Seal, and then Avi Schleim from St. Anthony's uh, will be our discussant. Um, and of course, there'll be a uh, reception later on in the senior common room, and we hope to see all of you at that. Uh, so, uh, let me welcome you to this first uh, event, particularly thank the panel in advance for their contributions, congratulate uh, Fawaz on uh, his uh, organization of this event, thank the Emirates Foundation and the NACBIS uh, for their support, and um, off we go. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Davis, for that very useful uh, introduction and overview. Uh, my name is Hassan Hakimian. I'm the director of the London Middle East Institute at SOAS. It's my great pleasure to chair uh, this first academic session of the Middle East Center at LSE. Um, we are here to listen uh, to a lineup of very uh, qualified uh, and well-informed uh, academic scholars on a subject which is obviously very topical and also timely. So, uh, first of all, let me thank you for being here. I can well understand the uh, uh, temptation to be glued to uh, the satellite TVs and the websites which are uh, literally churning out news as it happens on, out on the streets of uh, the Arab world. And, uh, uh, and I'm pretty confident that once you hear what our panel has to offer, you will feel well compensated for that loss. Um, I must confess I'm an LSE alumnus and I was here in 1974 when the so-called oil boom shook the foundation of Middle Eastern economies, at least the oil exporters. And I left Iran, uh, my home country at that time, uh, to be faced uh, here with what came to be known as stagflation. Uh, when I opened the Financial Times today, one of the lead uh, commentaries was stagflation is uh, influenced by events in the Arab streets. Uh, I'm not suggesting any causal connection, but being back here in this intellectual environment uh, does bring back old memories. And as Howard said, uh, events in the Middle East are again very, very hot. As somebody who comes from the Middle East, who is uh, involved with the Middle East and engaged academically and scholarly, I can't help but think that after a long, perhaps, period of academic scholarly policy period during which uh, denial was perhaps the order of the day, during which interest in area studies perhaps went down, 
then the sudden reaction after the 9-11 and the vociferous industry dealing with the so-called war on terror and uh, uh, political Islam and so on and so forth. I'm pleased that now there's an opportunity to actually to redress that agenda by focusing our interest on what we should be talking about, the transition to representative governments and uh, transformation of the political space in countries that, uh, in this respect, also have proven to conform to the exceptionalism that Middle East has often been talked about. So uh, this event is being uh, recorded. Uh, there will be uh, people interested in the topic who will hopefully have an opportunity to listen to the deliberations here. Uh, and uh, if you decide uh, at a later opportunity to uh, listen to the podcast, this will be uploaded on the LSE Middle East Center website. Uh, let me just say a few words about the order of the session and then I'll uh, introduce the speakers uh, and we'll get started. Uh, we will have the speakers, uh, starting with Professor Ayub, who will talk about 35 minutes or so, and then that will be followed by uh, Dr. Patrick Seal, who will talk about 25 minutes or so, and then we'll have a discussion Professor uh, Schleim, who will talk about 15 minutes, I'm told exact. As you can imagine, there's been some negotiation beforehand about the exact allocation of time. <laughs> Speaking of which, we have until uh, 5.25, there is another event in this hall, and I think uh, about two, and two hours, 15 minutes is plenty of time to allow us, hopefully also for lively uh, Q&As. So, let me make some uh, very brief introductory uh, remarks about uh, Professor Ayub, who is a very well-known scholar, and many of you will already know him, and then I will ask him to start. And then we will proceed, as I said, uh, with each speaker, and then open the floor to discussion. Professor Ayub is a university distinguished professor of international relations at Michigan State University. He's a specialist on conflict and security and has held appointments in various universities around the world, amongst them uh, the Australian National University and JNU in India. And he's also held visiting appointments at Columbia, Princeton, Oxford, and Bill Kent in Turkey, of course. He's written a number of books, uh, among which I would just mention The Politics of Islamic Reassertion, the Many Faces of Political Islam and Religion and Politics in Saudi Arabia, Wahhabism and the State. So over to you, Professor Ayub. Thank you very much, Professor Hakimian, for that kind introduction. Uh, I'm honored to be here to speak at the first major academic event of the Middle East Center at LSE. And I'm most grateful to my good friend, Professor Fawaz Chirgis, for inviting me and giving me the opportunity uh, to do so. I'd also like to thank Patrick for ceding five minutes of his time to me. <laughs> uh, let me begin by a brief reference to what's been happening in Egypt uh, in the last few days. Uh, 
because in the past few days news about the Middle East has been dominated by what I call Mubarak's painfully slow descent into the garbage chute of history. But I, I would argue also that despite the dramatic events in Cairo, Alexandria and the rest of that country, the events in Egypt have done nothing to contradict my, my conviction uh, that the, the center of gravity in the Middle East has shifted dramatically in the past few years from the Arab heartland, comprising, of course, of Egypt and the Fertile Crescent, to what was once considered the non-Arab periphery, Turkey and Iran. Uh, and again, despite the euphoria that, is, that has surrounded uh, the events in Egypt and our discussions of it, and we are all happy to see, or most of us anyway, it's, 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 that, that, uh, the, that the Egyptian public, I, I hate to call it the Arab street, because that sort of has a condescension, built-in condescension uh, into it, has, is, is finally trying to take its future into its own hands. But Mubarak, I would argue, is the symptom of the disease and not the disease itself. The disease in itself is the entrenched military-dominated regime in Egypt. And if you look at what's happening behind the scenes today, uh, the military uh, top brass may now have come to the conclusion that they do not need Mubarak anymore. But this doesn't mean that overnight there will be a systemic change in Egypt, that the power structure is going to undergo genuine transformation. Uh, it is very difficult for military-dominated power structures to undergo such transformations in a short period of time. Uh, it took Turkey 60 years before it has achieved a, now a credible amount of civilian supremacy over the military. Uh, for the last 50 years, the Pakistani civilian politicians have been trying to bring the military under control with extremely limited success. Uh, so overthrowing a military-dominated power structure uh, is not an overnight task. And that's where the, the difference between Egypt and Tunisia lies. In Tunisia, by all accounts, the military was largely apolitical, uh, and the group around uh, Ben Ali was not so closely tied to the military regime, uh, and therefore uh, the military could advise him to leave, and one could see a genuine change in the offing in that country. Egypt is very different. The military has been in power for a long, long time since the uh, Free Officers' Coup in 1952. Uh, and therefore, I'm not very optimistic that merely a change of face at the top is going to mean a change in the, uh, uh, in, in the, in the power structure in Egypt. Uh, and even if the slow process of transformation, genuine transformation in Egypt begins uh, as of tomorrow or day after tomorrow and Mubarak is pushed out, and there is an attempt by civilian leaders to, br to bring the military under control, it would take a few painful decades before Egypt would uh, arrive at a point where it can play the role that it used to play at one time as the center uh, of uh, Arab politics, uh, if not of Middle Eastern politics as a whole. So I would still stick to my thesis that Turkey and Iran are the two countries in the Middle East to watch, and for a number of reasons. And I firmly believe that the future of the Middle East is going to be decided in Ankara and Tehran, and not so much in Riyadh and, and, and Cairo. And the reasons that I have marshaled for that, and I'll go into it in, in, in some detail uh, in, in, in a few moments, are the following. Turkey, if you look at Turkey, what uh, impresses one most is the sense of economic dynamism 
that it has demonstrated over the last, um, over the last 10 years. Also what impresses us is the democratic consolidation that has been taken, that has been taking place in Turkey over the last uh, two or three decades, and particularly since the coming to power of the Justice and Development Party in Ankara. The fact that serving and recently retired military officers uh, could be put in jail, uh, could be held accountable uh, for, for deeds that they had uh, committed, uh, shows a major uh, transformation of the dynamics between the civilians uh, and the military. What also impresses me uh, is, the, is, is the largely successful attempt in Turkey to reconcile the values of a largely observant Muslim society with those of a secular state. It's a very, it, had, it appeared to be a very difficult task to accomplish uh, until the AK party took matters into its own hands. And despite the hiccups uh, that, that we have seen in, 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 in Turkey uh, from now and then, I think it's been a remarkable achievement so far. Finally, Turkey has over the last few years been charting an independent course of action in the Middle East and elsewhere, thus fracturing its image as a bit player in the American strategy towards the region. There's been a remarkable reassertion of autonomy uh, in terms of foreign policy objectives and, and, and strategies uh, in Turkey. It, uh, and and, and, and uh, the current foreign minister, Ahmed Dautulu, and his rhetoric sort of symbolizes it, but it goes deeper than that. Iran is a more iffy case, particularly because uh, of the domestic problems uh, in Iran, the lack of legitimacy or at least the lack of total legitimacy of the Iranian regime. And therefore, that is where the Achilles heel of Iran, lie, uh, Iran lie, lies. And I'm worried about the transformation from what was un until now what one could call a hybrid form uh, of political system where the uh, where representative institutions and uh, clerical supervisory institutions uh, operated side by side and interacted with each other with certain checks and balances to what I've begun to call a begun to call Praetorian corporatism with the rise of the IRGC of the Revolutionary Guard uh, in, in both the economic it has, it has of course spread its tentacles in the economic sphere but now through uh, Ahmadinejad and others around him uh, has been attempting to take control of the political sphere as well and this has of course brought it into conflict not merely uh, with the Democrat with the reformist forces in Iran but also with a large segment of the uh, Shia ulama uh, who have had a, uh, a, a privileged role in the running of the country since the uh, Islamic revolution so there are all sorts of tensions that are uh, built into uh, Iran but I think the saving, the saving grace of Iran is that the political power structure is still largely fractured, that there are many centers of power competing, uh, competing for, um, uh, for supremacy within the, uh, within the political system, and that affords checks and still some checks and balances within the system. But the main, but the main reason why I think Iran needs to be watched uh, as, uh, a major, as a major player in the, international, in, in the regional system is the fact that Iran, since their revolution, has demonstrated an impressive amount of political independence as well as cultural autonomy. Whether one likes the mullahs or not, uh, this has uh, been the case. It has demonstrated, the, the revolution demonstrated 
that Western norms may have been temporarily dominant ones, but that they were not universal norms. And this was brought home to me when I, I visited Iran after the revolution in the early 1980s, in 1981. And a leading leftist intellectual who was an opponent uh, of Khomeini, who, who, who thought that Khomeini was a disaster and had let the revolution down, told me at the end of my conversation with him, but no matter what, Khomeini may be a disaster, but he is our homegrown disaster. He was not imposed by anyone from abroad. And I think that by itself, this, this uh, 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 attachment to, cult to cultural authenticity to some extent, but also political autonomy, is what drives much of uh, Iranian policy uh, till, till today. A defiance of the major powers at very great cost, economic and political to itself, especially on issues that infringe on national security and autonomy of, of, of Iran, for issues like the uranium enrichment, uh, the, the uranium enrichment uh, uh, controversy as to whether Iran should have the right to, en to enrich uranium or not. And so that's, that's as far as the domestic uh, uh, context of Iran and Turkey are concerned, why I think that, uh, this, uh, the, the, that these are the two countries that need to be watched as major players in the regional game. But this shift in terms of power and influence that I've been talking about, or at least referred to earlier on in my presentation, from the Arab heartland to Turkey and Iran, actually began with the Arab defeat in the Six-Day War of 1967. It gained momentum with the Iranian Revolution of 1979, despite the fact that the revolution threw Iran into turmoil for a considerable period of time. One began to see, however hazily, the contours of what I call the, the emerging Turco-Persian future of the Middle East in 1991, with the decimation of Iraqi power in the first Gulf War. This provided both Iran and Turkey political space to increase their influence in their vicinity. By decimating Iraqi power in the 91 war, uh, the, the United States reversed the power equation that had, it had been trying to establish, establish in the 1980s when Saddam Hussein was Washington's blue-eyed boy and, and the United States was interested after the fall of the Shah in using Iraq as the balancer against, uh, against Iran in the, in the Persian Gulf. Uh, and this became very clear during the Iran-Iraq War of 1980-88 especially after the spring of 1982 when it appeared that Iran was poised for, vic for victory. But with the Iraqi defeat in 1991 at the hands of American-led forces, the Iraqi balancer to Iran that Washington had tried to build uh, through the 80s collapsed. Simultaneously, by forcing Baghdad to abdicate control over northern Iraq, the United States provided, and this sounds counterintuitive to many people who have been obsessed with the, with the Turkish rhetoric of, uh, of, of uh, you know, that, that, that Turkey feared the emergence of an autonomous Kurdistan. But I would argue that this event provided the opportunity for Turkey to move in to fill the vacuum in its southeastern neighborhood. And as I said, this seemed counterintuitive at the time. Uh, uh, but Ankara was able to overcome its fear of an autonomous uh, or uh, autonomous Kurdistan sufficiently to turn itself into the economic lifeline for the landlocked Kurdish autonomous region, thus forcing the Iraqi Kurdish leadership to realize that their autonomous existence depended upon Turkey's goodwill. 
Consequently, it greatly neutralized the Iraqi Kurdish support to the PKK. This Turkish policy, coupled with well-calibrated threats to Syria, both bore fruit in the 1990s with Abdullah Öcalan's capture and the PKK's offer of a ceasefire. Turkey was now poised to become a major player in the Fertile Crescent. The shift in the balance from the Arab heartland to Turkey and Iran became a full-blown reality, and here I think the external strategic environment is extremely important, and the, um, the, the policies of the external major powers are very important, became a full-blown reality following the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq by the United States and its allies between 2001 and 2003. These invasions irrevocably changed the balance of forces in the eastern part of the Middle East by removing Iran's two major regional adversaries, the regimes in Baghdad and Kabul, uh, from power. While Tehran was greatly concerned about the presence of American troops on both its flanks, the Iranian ruling circles quickly realized that the United States was now stuck not in one, but in, not in one quagmire, but two. They also realized that Iran was an indispensable player in both these theaters because of its strong links with several Shia factions in Iraq. On the one hand, and its crucial support to the Northern Alliance and the Hazara in Afghanistan, plus its influence in its hinterland of, Her of Herat. And it became quickly clear that it would be extremely difficult for the United States to disengage from either of these quagmires uh, without Iran's cooperation or at least concurrence. On its part, Tehran adopted a calibrated policy of offering limited cooperation to Washington on both fronts while continuing to make life difficult for the United States in both the countries under American occupation or control. Keeping the United States stuck in Afghanistan and Iraq was akin for the regime to buying life insurance as it drastically reduced the chances of Washington contemplating military action against Iran. The two invasions and their aftermath made it very clear that Iran was crucial to the construction of a stable and legitimate security structure in the Persian Gulf and beyond. The invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq coincided with a major shift in the balance between political forces within Turkey that I've already uh, mentioned in brief uh, with the coming to power of the Ak Party. The international implications of this event uh, began to become clear with the refusal of the Turkish parliament in March 2003 to provide American troops passage to northern Iraq to open a northern front against Saddam. The parliamentary vote, one must note, came against the advice of the new AKP government, which was still trying to find its feet in the slippery, in the slippery and military-infested terrain of Turkish politics. Nonetheless, the parliament's decision mirrored deep-seated antagonism among the Turkish public, observant and non-observant alike, towards the American invasion of Iraq. Uh, and this became very clear to me on a personal note when I was at Bill Kent uh, as a visiting professor in the fall of 2003, soon after the invasion of Iraq, uh, teaching a, a graduate course. And those of you who know Bill Kent know that it's a very elitist university where the sons and daughters of the secular elite go to school. Uh, it's, it's not an, an, an Islamically inclined uh, university or institution. It's one of the real elite, prestigious, very expensive uh, universities in Turkey. And I was surprised at the degree of antagonism that was demonstrated among, my, uh, among the students, the, these very bright young graduate students that I taught 
in the seminar both against the United States and against Israel, almost a visceral form of anti-American and anti-Israeli uh, rhetoric that came from the class. And I had to often act as the devil's advocate to explain to them why the United States this, did this and why Israel did this and so on and so forth. So the groundswell of opinion uh, against, or the, uh, uh, against both the United States, and we'll come to Israel a little later, uh, is not necessarily linked to uh, the Turkish public's, or, or, or is, is not necessarily limited to, to those segments of the Turkish public uh, that are uh, linked to the AKP or, or are Islamically uh, inclined. Uh, so that, that was just, just an aside to, to make the point that I wanted to make about uh, the antipathy towards the, uh, to, towards the uh, American invasion of Iraq. The, this parliamentary decision uh, that, pro, that, that prohibited the passage of American troops into northern Iraq also demonstrated, among other things, the coming of age as of a post-Kemalist democratic, democratic Turkey increasingly comfortable with and unapologetic about its Muslim identity. The American invasion of Iraq again in 2003 not only raised the specter once again of, a, of an independent Kurdistan, it also helped accelerate the shift in Turkish policy, both towards Iraqi Kurdistan and towards Turkey's own Kurdish population, a shift that bodes well for Turkish Kurdish, re Kurdish reconciliation in the near future. While Ankara's policy towards the Kurdish citizens of Turkey has not realized its full potential so far thanks to an ultranationalist backlash, there has been a remarkable change in Turkey's relations with the authorities, as I've said earlier, of Iraqi Kurdistan. This is the result both of Turkey's massive economic presence in the region and the dramatic shift in Ankara's political approach to autonomous Kurdistan. Turkey is the leading foreign investor in Iraqi Kurdistan and Turkish goods have flooded the markets of northern Iraq, thus inextricably tying the economic well-being of northern Iraq to Turkey. Politically, Ankara has signaled that it is willing to do a deal, to do, willing to deal with the autonomous authorities in a pragmatic fashion, as long as they officially abjure the idea of an independent Kurdish state, even if their region continues to function as if it were an independent entity. And this has been a remarkable show of political sagacity on the part of the AK Party, of the AK Party government, aimed both in building credible bridges with Iraqi Kurdistan and assuaging domestic Kurdish opinion. Combined with its soft approach to Syria, this policy is a remarkable demonstration of the success of its zero problem with neighbors approach advocated by Foreign Minister Daoud To call it neo-Ottomanism is an insult to the intelligence of Turkey's policymakers. They do not aspire to recreate the Ottoman Empire, only to improve reg Turkey's regional security environment, and at most to assert Turkey's long overdue role as a major regional actor in the, in, in the Middle East in a system of states. The same applies to Iran. Tehran is not in the business of deliberately creating a Shia crescent, although it's often the, the, the uh, analysis from the West is couched on those terms. It's not in the business of deliberately creating a Shia crescent, or, although it's not averse to using its Shia allies, whether in Iraq or Lebanon or elsewhere for its own ends. Uh, it, but it's not aimed at creating a Shia crescent at the cost of its relations with the majority Sunni population of the Middle East. Its close links with the, with the, with the Lebanese Hezbollah and the Iraqi Shia groups are forged as much out of strategic necessity 
the Israeli threat to South Lebanon on the one hand and the American military presence in Iraq on the other, as they are of sectarian affinity. Iran aspires, like Turkey, to be acknowledged as a major regional player and recognizes that it cannot reach this goal by alienating the Sunni majority in the Middle East. Credible polls have clearly demonstrated that the vast majority of the Sunni Arab publics do not view Iran as a threat to their countries, no matter what the ruling elites tell visiting American dignitaries. The pragmatism of Iranian policy is demonstrated by its Iraq policy, uh, in which it has attempted while supporting the Shia factions uh, uh, to, to bring Sunni elements into the power structure as well. Tehran's support to Hamas, an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood uh, in occupied Palestine, is another case in point. Such a policy contributes a great deal to enhancing Iranian credibility in the predominantly Sunni, Arab, and Muslim world. Tehran's blossoming relations with Turkey, to which I will come in a moment, proves this point as well. Both Tehran and Ankara have moved far beyond the Safavid, Ottoman, and Shia Sunni syndromes, faced as they are with the challenges of consolidating their preeminence in their vicinity in a world of nation states, dominated at the global level by what I have called elsewhere the unipolar concept, a concept that I can define during the question hour if, if, you, if you want me to define that. The shift in the strategic and political balance in the greater Middle East, therefore, that I've, been, you know, that I've been speaking about is the result of a combination of factors, some domestic, some regional, some global. They're also the result of a combination of hard with soft power and the increasing dexterity with which Ankara and Tehran have been able to combine the two sets of assets in particular situations and contexts. Hard power can, can of course, be quantified, and I don't want to go into that uh, uh, as, as a professor of political science as to what hard, hard power is and how it is quantified, except to say that Turkey is the 17th largest economy today in terms of GDP in the world and ranks well ahead of all other countries in the Middle East with a growth rate of eight, between 8 to 9%, far exceeding that of the European Union, about three or four times that of the European Union. Iran has the 29th largest economy, with only Turkey and Saudi Arabia with its vast oil wealth ahead of it among Middle Eastern states. Soft power is much more difficult to measure, but is as important in international politics because uh, as, as, as has been defined by uh, Joseph Nye, it rests on the ability to shape the preference of others. Soft power ca can be, is, is sort of a, 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 a power that attracts, and it can be measured by asking people through, through polls and focus groups. According to one of the most reliable polls undertaken in six Arab countries in 2010, and this is an annual exercise that has been going on for the last several years, uh, undertaken, this, the, the last poll was taken in 2010 by the University of Maryland and Zogby International. Three regional leaders compete for the top spot in terms of popularity in the Arab world. Erdogan, Ahmadinejad, and Nasrallah. Only one of the three is an Arab, and he's the only one who's not, not a head of a government or, or state. In Arab perceptions, Erdogan, who leads the pack by a substantial margin, represents the Turkish model of Muslim democracy. Ahmadinejad represents the Muslim world's defiance of the West, especially of the United States. And Nasrullah represents Arab and Muslim resistance against Israeli designs. All three, of course, share to different degrees dislike of or antagonism toward Israel. 
which is explainable by the continuing Israeli occupation of Palestine and its aspirations for military hegemony of the Middle East, in the Middle East heartland that is guaranteed by the supply of the state-of-the-art American weapons. This poll, of course, like its predecessors, also says a great deal about the sad state of affairs in the Arab world and the low esteem in which much of the Arab population holds its rulers. It is also worth noting that all the three figures admired by the Arab publics are associated in one way or another with political manifestations of Islam. Uh, I do not have the time to dilate upon that, but one could again return to that uh, in the question and answer period. What this means is that both Turkey and Iran have the sort of soft power in the Middle East that no other country can wield. Turkey's soft power is largely a function of the legitimacy of its political system and of its leadership at, at home. Iran's soft power is based on the acceptance by large segments of the population of the Middle East of its foreign policy objectives, namely resistance against global hegemony and assertion of its autonomy in international affairs as an independent player that is willing to bear the cost of defying the concert of powers dominating the international security and economic uh, structures. Of course, a legitimate question arises at this point. What does all this, uh, uh, for, you know, what, what does all this signify for the future of the Middle East? How is this Turco-Persian future, as I call it, uh, going to unfold? Much will depend upon how Tehran and Ankara manage their bilateral relationship. It will also depend upon how Tehran and Ankara, sorry, it will also depend upon their ability individually and collectively to convince external powers, especially the United States, to reduce their level of intervention in regional affairs and to restrain Israel's capacity to draw upon external support above all from the United States. I'm quite optimistic on the first score, which is Turkish-Iranian relations. I believe both Turkey and Iran have demonstrated during the past decade the capacity to keep their relationship on an even keel, despite their fact, the fact that their objectives do not fully coincide on a number of issues, including relations with the United States and Iran's nuclear program. Turkey has done an, an intricate balancing act to keep its relationship with the United States intact while improving relations with Iran and has succeeded remarkably. Iran has demonstrated its understanding of Turkey's links with NATO and therefore with the United States and never made this an obstacle in the improvement of its relations with Turkey. Turkey, on its part, recognizes Iran's aspirations for nuclear autonomy, especially building indigenous capacity to enrich uranium, although it may be ambivalent about the strategy adopted by Iran to achieve its goal in this arena. And this has become clear over the last year in the diplomatic efforts that Turkey has launched to try and bridge the gap between uh, the P5 plus 1 on the one hand and Iran on the other on the issue of, of uranium enrichment. Uh, economic relations, especially in the field of energy, where Iran is the second largest supplier of natural gas to Turkey, and the latter a significant exporter of goods and services to Iran, plus a potential conduit for the transport of Iranian gas to European markets have contributed in, in substantial measure to the rapprochement between the two countries. All this does not mean that there will be no problem in bilateral relations in the future. What it does mean is that situated as they are on the western and eastern extremities of the Middle East, and given the interests that bind them, Turkey and Iran are unlikely to come into direct clash with one another. In it, well, 
the, the Iranian nuclear issue and the two countries' relations of, with Israel have, uh, uh, are, are cited as issues that may, call, and may cause occasional hiccups. However, it's clear that Turkey is adequately sensitive to the Iranian position on uranium en enrichment and that the Iranian and Turkish positions on Israel, although their rhetoric is vastly different, have begun more and more to coincide with each other rather than uh, diverge. The, the sticking point here, of course, is, or the sticking points, one could argue, is what the external powers, particularly the United States, uh, plans to do uh, in the Middle East. The United States, for a number of reasons, including the fact that the Middle East, particularly the Persian Gulf, is home to vast uh, strategic energy resources, uh, has always been very much involved uh, in the Middle East, plus the fact that the United States uh, has a commitment uh, to support Israel, which goes beyond merely uh, ensuring Israeli security against its Arab neighbors. Uh, and, these, but, and, and these are two issues that continue to remain, um, uh, you know, are, are issues that are, not, that are beyond the control of either uh, Ankara or Tehran. Uh, and, 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 and may still uh, create problems for the, uh, for the future of the, uh, of the Middle East. Uh, as I've said, pre uh, preventing American interference in the Middle East and reducing its current presence is a very difficult issue, uh, particularly in the, in, in the context of energy supplies and, and of Israel. However, energy supplies can be ensured, one could argue, more safely by diplomacy rather than force. And uh, by now, I think people in Washington should have understood that America's military presence creates more hostility in the region and thus threatens energy supplies uh, rather than uh, uh, ensuring it. Israel has become or has been traditionally a matter of American domestic politics rather than foreign policy. Policies uh, on Israel are unlikely to change. American policies in Israel are likely to change unless and until the policymakers break free of what's known as the lobby's grip and come to realize that Israel is a strategic liability and has been a strategic liability rather than a strategic uh, asset uh, in the Middle East. Both these variables of uh, the American presence in the Middle East and Israel are, of course, uh, not in the control of either Turkey or Iran and complicate their attempts to manage relations in their neighborhoods. But, those, but both these factors also have major neg negative impact on American standing in the region, uh, a reality that American foreign policymakers find, so far at least, they find it difficult to recognize. Thank you very much. And I cede my five minutes back to you. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Ayub, for that very thought-provoking uh, uh, talk, and uh, especially for taking my instructions about timekeeping uh, literally. Um, our second speaker is also uh, very well known uh, to many of you, I'm sure, here. Dr. Patrick Seal is a leading writer on the Middle East, and he's uh, authored a number of books. Uh, I will mention a few. Uh, the Struggle for Syria, also Assad of Syria, The Struggle for the Middle East, uh, and another one is Abu Nidal, 
a gun for hire. Uh, he read Middle East history at St. Anthony's College, Oxford, and studied Arabic at the Middle East Center for Arabic Studies in Lebanon. Uh, he has been honored by Oxford University with a DLIT and is also a senior associate member of St. Anthony's College at Oxford. Uh, his journalistic experience uh, is impressive and it includes six years with Reuters and over 12 with the Observer. He's covered the Middle East, Africa, and India for a long time. I'm pleased to say his uh, latest publication, his new book, uh, The Struggle for Arab Independence, which is published by, just published by uh, CUP, Cambridge University Press, is available and displayed outside on the table and is available for a special price of 24 pounds. I'm sure he'll be happy to sign a few copies today and on that uh, marketing note, I hand over to Patrick. Thank you very much. Thank you. Nothing like a bit of self-promotion. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to talk mainly about Egypt and the geopolitical consequences of what we're witnessing there. There's no doubt that the Arab Middle East is experiencing something like a revolution. Some would say it's long overdue. Right across the region, people power is beginning to threaten the foundations of the old autocratic order. But not all the autocrats will fall, at least not yet. Not all the regimes are as vulnerable as those of Tunisia and Egypt, and perhaps Yemen. The level of vulnerability differs, of course, according to the structure of power in each of these countries, the nature of the country's external alignments and the extent to which wealth is distributed. But there's little doubt that all the rulers across the region now feel great anxiety and are looking to their defenses as to how they can contain or deflect this wave of protest. The various up upheavals have much in common. Demonstrations in the different countries all seem to be clamoring for the same things, which seem to fall, I think, into three broad categories. One, they all seem to want democratic governance. That is to say, freedom of expression, the right to speak and be heard, the right freely to choose their representatives, an end to dictatorship, to imprisonment without trial, to police brutality, to torture. Abuses which all Arab regimes seem to be guilty of, virtually with no exception. Secondly, they want jobs, better, a better life for themselves and their children, cheaper food and services, economic opportunities, social justice. Thirdly, in one country after another, a common demand is the punishment of a greedy, corrupt elite that has managed to monopolize power and wealth. Now, although it is only now a broken surface, the protest movement in these various countries has deep roots I believe, in the profound social and economic changes of recent decades. A striking feature of the whole region is the demographic explosion. When Napoleon invi invaded Egypt in 1798, there were just three million Egyptians. When Nasser and his free officers took power in Egypt in 1952, there were 19 million Egyptians. Today, there are 84 million Egyptians. 
crammed into something like 3% of Egypt's land area. Catering for such a vast population is an immense problem, taxing the state's resources. 40% of the Egyptians are said to, be, to live on, on, on less than $2 a day. That's $100 a year. This in itself creates a revolutionary situation. Egypt is not the only country to suffer. When in the 1960s I wrote my first book, which our chairman was kind enough to mention, Struggle for Syria, Syria's population was just 4 million. Today it has climbed to 23 million. The same population explosion can be seen in Yemen, in Algeria, in Libya, in Saudi Arabia, and right across the region. The oil countries can manage this, this incredible pressure that poor countries cannot. Another socio-economic trend which has powered the, the protest movement is the massive migration from the countryside to the teeming cities. No longer able to make a living on the land, millions have become urbanized. To feed its population, Egypt has to import 50% of its grain, a vast strategic liability. Cairo's population alone is said now to be around 19 million. These masses provide the manpower for these street demonstrations. There are probably only two capital cities in the region, Cairo and Tehran, where you get this crowd effect which could in fact overthrow a population. Too many people in the street to be gunned down. A third socio-economic factor which has powered the Intifada is the spread of education. Together with the revolution in communications, mobile phones, satellite television, uh, social networks, uh, the internet and so forth. All these have served to awaken and politicize the population and sharpen grievances. Several reporters I was listening to on Al Jazeera, for example, mentioned that many people in the crowd spoke English. They are most probably unemployed graduates, the new middle class poor, the most focused and determined of the protesters, the ones that provide the leadership for the movement. Now, although the Tunisian upheaval provided the trigger, what has happened in Egypt is of far greater significance. Egypt has long been a focal point of Arab and international attention. It has in the past exercised great influence in Arab affairs, whether positively or negatively. It is widely understood that what happens in Egypt will affect the whole region. That is why Arab rulers, as well as the United States and Israel, are watching the situation very closely. Why are the United States and Israel so deeply concerned? They are waiting anxiously to see who will emerge on top and what the demonstrators really want. Do they only want jobs, food, social justice, a more open society? Or do they also want to change Egypt's external alignments? You will remember that after the October War of 1973, Henry Kissinger, then America's national security advisor and then Secretary of State, maneuvered Egypt out of its alliance with Syria, indeed out of the, uh, the, the Arab equation altogether, a strategy which was eventually to lead to Egypt's separate peace with Israel in 1979. The peace treaty isolated Egypt from, its, from Arab affairs. Egypt was punished by an Arab boycott. It was ostracized and marginalized. 
In a symbolic gesture, the headquarters of the Arab League was moved from Cairo, you remember, to Tunis. Egypt's regional influence was greatly reduced. However, it was handsomely rewarded by the United States with large-scale American aid. America's concern was to protect the peace treaty and, of course, to protect Israel. The peace treaty had the effect of neutralizing Egypt but of liberating Israel. The removal of Egypt, the largest Arab country from the Arab lineup, meant that Israel had nothing more to fear from its Arab neighbors. There was no longer any possibility of an Arab coalition that might threaten Israel or limit its freedom of action. This absence of a regional balance of power gave Israel a free hand. One result of the treaty was Israel's invasion of Lebanon in 1982. With all its gory consequences, the killing of some 17,000 Lebanese and Palestinians, the siege of Beirut, the massacre of Sabra and Shatila by Israel's phalangist allies, the expulsion of the PLO from Lebanon. The treaty dealt a severe blow to Palestinian national aspirations because Israel, undeterred by any Arab show of strength, was able to continue its seizure of Palestinian territory. The treaty with Egypt, together with America's unwavering support, also allowed Israel to thumb its nose at all attempts to persuade it to make peace with the Palestinians or curb its greater Israel ambitions. Whether such attempts were made by the Palestinians themselves or by the Arabs collectively in the Arab Peace Initiative or indeed by the United States. Throughout his 30-year career, it could be 30 years this October, Mubarak has avoided any confrontation with Israel. He has distant, distanced Egypt from troublesome Arab concerns. He's abandoned any attempt to claim Arab leadership for, for Egypt. Instead, he adopted an Egypt-first policy, concentrating on developing tourism and on the security of Sinai, even when this meant collaborating with Israel against Hamas in Gaza. In fact, there's been a long, cozy, trilateral relationship between Israel, the United States, and Egypt, dedicated to keeping the so-called extremists down, whether Arab nationalists, Islamists, or Palestinians. So much for the past. Egypt is now in ferment, and the future is uncertain. All the news we get is that there's an attempt by Mubarak and his regime to rally people against the, 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 the protesters. If Mubarak and his new Vice President, Omar Suleiman, if they manage, if they fail to hang on to power, as is possible, the question will arise whether a new regime would revert to something like the Arab nationalist, pan-Arab, pro-Palestinian stance of the past. When President Sadat made peace with Israel three decades ago, he was responding to overwhelming war weariness in Egypt a sense that Egypt had made more than its share of sacrifice for the Arab cause. But today, peace with Israel is not popular in Egypt. There's been little fraternizing between the two countries. Mubarak's collusion with Israel in keeping the Palestinians down has been a source of anger and humiliation. Many Egyptians were shocked to see their country joining in Israel's cruel siege of Gaza. Dr. Mohammed al-Baradai, the Nobel Prize winner, who is now trying to rally and unite the various strands of the opposition. 
I read somewhere that he once declared that the blockade of Gaza was a brand of shame, I'm quoting his words, on the forehead of every Egyptian, every Arab, every human being. So that gives a clue to where he stands. Men like him have always opposed the way the Mubarak government followed Israel and the United States in demonizing the Islamic Republic of Iran. Baradai himself strongly opposed the war against Iraq and condemned any attempt to replicate that aggression against Iran. Inevitably, he is now being smeared as a, pro, as a pro-Iranian stooge and apologist. The fact of the matter is that hostility to Iran runs counter, as the previous speaker mentioned, runs counter to the sentiments of many Arabs, Egyptians among them. Many of them applaud the efforts of Iran and its allies, Syria and Hezbollah, Hamas, to challenge the domination of the region by the United States and Israel. Many Arabs, and by no means only Shias, admire Hezbollah's leader, Nasrallah, for his robust stance. In turn, again, as our, the previous space speaker mentioned, Turkey's Prime Minister Erdogan is adulated across the region precisely because he opposed America's invasion of Iraq and has stood up to Israel. So will things change in Egypt? Will Egypt's relations with Israel suffer? Might the peace treaty itself be revoked? The answer to these questions will depend very much on the views, attitudes, and ambitions of Egypt's officer corps, and on the role the army is likely to play in this unfolding drama. As the strongest single force in Egypt, the army is bound to have a say as events unfold. Will it side with the regime or with the protesters? It has tilted with the protesters by vowing not to use force, but just overnight I heard that it advised the protesters to go home. So obviously there's some great debate going on in the officer corps. Since the peace treaty 32 years ago, the United States has armed and funded the Egyptian army, as you all know, to the tune of $1.3 billion a year. It has done so to ensure that the Egyptian army will not, will not fight Israel, nor have any inclination to do so. But many Egyptian officers still consider Israel their country's main potential enemy. Little wonder that Israel is watching the developments very closely. An allied question concerns the role of the Muslim Brotherhood, a movement often described as the only effective opposition to Mubarak's regime. Although it has suffered great repression in recent years, it is generally considered to be the best organized and most effective movement in Egypt with hundreds of thousands of supporters. It runs a vast welfare program, many of you will know about. Its spokesmen have stated that they will lend their support to Dr. Baradai in the coming transitional phase. Will the Islamists come to the fore in a future regime? Their opposition to Mubarak's pro-American foreign policy and to the treaty with Israel is well known. If there, is, if there are ever free elections in Egypt, it is safe to bet that the Muslim Brotherhood will win possibly majority support. When the Islamists seemed to take a back seat in Tunisia, in its so-called Jasmine Revolution, there was huge relief in the West. 
But now that Mr. Hanushi, the Islamist al-Nahda leader, has returned to his hometown in, in, in Tunisia after long years of exile, things may change. Some in the West hope that Egypt's Islamists will be bypassed by the popular clamor for jobs and freedom. This seems to me unlikely. So if I could just sum up this part of what I have to say, four important questions hang on the outcome of events. First, what role will the Egyptian army play? Secondly, is it probable that the Muslim Brotherhood may come to power in some form or other? Thirdly, will Egypt's peace treaty with Israel survive a change of regime? And if the treaty is revoked or abrogated, what could this mean for the regional balance of power and for regional peace? And fourthly, once the Mubarak regime passes from the scene, as it must, either now or in September, what will be Egypt's regional and international stance? Will a new Egypt recover its central place in Arab affairs and throw its weight behind Arab causes? And I want to say a few words about the United States and its position in all this. It seems clear, to me at least, that the intifadas breaking out across the region are a serious blow to the United States and its allies. They serve to highlight the sharp decline in American influence. This is one of the most striking features of the Middle East landscape. The United States may still be the world's greatest economic and military power, but in the Middle East and West Asia, in that vast area from the Maghreb to Pakistan, it seems to have no grip over the unfolding drama. In country after country, America's hard power is being challenged and its soft power is derided. President Barack Obama's thankless task, it seems to me, is to manage America's decline. It's not easy. Examples of this, this decline are legion. Let me list some of them. In Egypt, as we've seen, the United States risks losing a major strategic ally. The disappearance of Mubarak could signal the end of 40 years of American diplomacy aimed at protecting Israel and keeping Arab aspirations down. In Tunisia, an American-backed kleptocrat has been overthrown. In Yemen, Jordan, and Algeria, American-backed regimes are facing a swelling movement demanding change. In Iraq, America's huge investment in men and treasure has not won it any lasting influence. On the contrary, the Iraq war has brought to power in Baghdad a Shia-dominated regime with close ties to Iran. This is hardly to the liking of the United States or its allies among Sunni-dominated regimes. In Iraq itself, the mass of the population will not easily forgive the United States for destroying their country. Arab opinion at large has been outraged by this catastrophic imperial adventure. In Lebanon, America's allies have been routed in a constitutional process which has brought a Hezbollah-backed prime minister to power to the dismay of the United States and Israel and the satisfaction of Syria and Iran. Iran, indeed, as we heard from the previous speaker, remains defiant and unbowed. In spite of the severe pressure Washington has put on it in the form of sanctions, isolation, intimidation, and the ever-present threat of military attack. Meanwhile, in both Afghanistan and Pakistan, Taliban guerrillas continue to hold their own against the full force of American might. A clear-cut victory for America and its allies seems out of reach. Indeed, the problem the America faces is how to get out 
of the AFPAC theatre of war without suffering a humiliating defeat. Perhaps the most striking example of the paralysis of American power is that Israel, a small country of 7 million people, heavily dependent on American aid of all sorts, yet felt able to defy and humiliate the American president on the question of the expansion of West Bank settlements. Anti-American sentiment across the region seems to me to be driven by three main grievances. First, it's a reaction to the massive destruction and loss of life caused by America's wars and counterinsurgency operations, whether in Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, increasingly in Yemen and elsewhere. Also, the presence of its vast military bases on Arab soil. Number one, the militarization of American foreign policy. Secondly, it's an expression of anger at America's blind support for Israel. We know, know that. In suppression of the Palestinians and its repeated attacks and assaults on Lebanon. Thirdly, it's a rebellion against America's tendency to prop up autocratic and corrupt Arab regimes, which all too often are seen by their populations to be protecting American and Israeli interests rather than their own. The popular support enjoyed by resistance movements such as Hezbollah and Hamas is itself a reflection of the hostility American and its Israeli ally have aroused. America's loss of influence is shared by its European allies, especially those like Britain and France, who still aspire to play a leading role in the region. In Britain's case, its meek alignment on American policy has eroded much of the influence it once had. Let me give you a recent example. William Hague, Britain's foreign policy, foreign secretary, paid a visit to Damascus last week for talks with President Assad. The BBC reported, and I heard it myself, that he was seeking Syrian help to persuade Iran to halt its nuclear program. I would have thought this was a vain endeavor. Did anyone notice that William Hague was in Syria? Did, he, did his visit make headlines? There would certainly have been some excitement had he announced that in view of the dangerous impasse in the Arab-Israeli peace process, Britain was now prepared to step into the breach in conjunction with other European powers, perhaps with Russia as well. Russia is well known to want to reactivate the quartet and to replace its discredited representative, Tony Blair. As a first step, Haig might have announced that he was seeking to put together a contact group to engage in dialogue with Hezbollah and Hamas. He might have added that he was in Damascus for preliminary talks with Hamas's political leader, Khalid Mishal. Just imagine the impact of such a statement. Alas, nothing of the sort happened, nor is likely to happen. Bowing as usual to American and Israeli pressure, Britain continues to hold Hezbollah and Hamas at arm's length as if they were pariahs, as if unaware that to ignore these two brave movements is political folly. The collapse of the Arab-Israeli peace process has created a perilous situation which requires firm and imaginative action if it is not to de degenerate into violence and perhaps even another regional war. One waits in vain for a British initiative. I'm sure that William Hague was given a friendly welcome in Damascus. Syria would like to improve its relations with the United Kingdom, as it has done with France, Spain, Italy, and other European countries. 
Syria does not pretend to be a democracy. Opponents of the regime are treated harshly. The country's human rec rights record is abysmal. Freedom of expression barely exists, and the commanding heights of the economy are monopolized, like in so many other countries, by a small and greedy elite. Syria has managed to get away with these malpractices and has so far been spared a mass protest movement, in part at least because of its nationalist stance, its support for the Palestinians, for the resistance in Lebanon, and its stand against America and Israel. This appears to give the regime a certain license at home. To justify the tight control it imposes on its citizens, Syria invokes its security needs. There is no doubt that it lives in a dangerous environment. It is not easy to be a neighbor of an aggressive Israel, which, with American support, has repeatedly lashed out its, at its neighbors. To protect itself from attack and to acquire a minimum deterrent capability, Syria has for the past 30 years joined in a strategic partnership, as you all know, with Iran and Hezbollah. The three members of this so-called Tehran-Damascus-Hezbollah axis know that they stand or fall together. Together, they form the only effective barrier to American-backed Israeli hegemony. This axis has recently won valuable support from the rich and diplomatically ambitious state of Qatar, and more significantly from Turkey, which in the last three or four years has carved out for itself a crucially important role on the Middle East scene. The success of Turkey's build diplomacy, extending from the Balkans through the Middle East to the Caucasus and Central Asia, provides a striking contrast with America's repeated failures. Having once been a close ally of Israel, Turkey is now one of its harshest critics. By siding with Israel's opponents, Turkey has restricted Israel's freedom of action for the first time in decades. Let me finish quickly by saying that America's shrinking influence has come to, as a shock to many people in the Middle East and not least to the Americans themselves. This is because of the predominant position the Americans occupied in the region for many decades after the Second World War. It inherited this role from the former imperial powers, Britain and France, and then far outstripped them to become the major principal external influence on the region. Some of the milestones you will all be familiar with the 1947 Truman Doctrine, for example, when America took over from Britain the defense of Greece and Turkey, threatened then by the communists. America's position was boosted by the way President Eisenhower forced Britain, France, and Israel to get out of Egypt after the ill-fated Suez Expedition. As we all know, the high point of American influence was reached in the 89 to 91 period when the Americans, the United States emerged as the world's only hyperpower. Key landmarks of this ascent were the Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan in 89 under pressure of the US-backed Mujahideen, the collapse of communism in Europe, the breakup of the Soviet Union, the defeat of Saddam Hussein, and the liberation of Kuwait in, in the war of first Gulf War of 1991, and then, of course, the convening of the, of the Madrid Peace Conference of 91, which seemed to herald an American determination to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. But from that high point, it's been downhill all the way. The US squandered its dominant position in the Middle East by a number of grave foreign policy mistakes, and I'm just going to mention three or four of them because time is running out. One of them 
was American reaction to the overthrow of the Shah in 79 and the emergence of, of, of the Islamic Republic. There was apparently little understanding in Washington of the depths of Iranian anger at the way America and Britain overthrew Mossadegh, the nationalist prime minister, in 1953, and propped up the Shah and his autocratic regime for the next 25 years. No doubt, the United States should have made up with Tehran once American diplomats who had been held hostage were released, but they didn't. The dispute was allowed to fester, and the result was that the United States acquired an opponent in the region of very considerable weight. Yet I think that was the mishandling of the relationship with Iran, I think, is a major blunder. Secondly, of course, the part of that, the Iraq-Iran war, I think, as the previous speaker mentioned, of 1980-88, fueled further Iranian hostility because the United States and its allies backed Iraq with funds and weapons and so forth. Now, the second mistake, major mistake, I think, was the way the Americans lost interest in the Afghan Mujahideen, the tens of thousands of Muslim youths which they helped recruit and train and arm to fight the Soviets. Once the Soviets withdrew, the Americans dropped them. Large numbers of alienated, unemployed youth were abandoned. No attempt was made to re re reintegrate them or unwanted in their own country. Some of them found a home and a cause in Osama bin Laden's Al-Qaeda. The presence of half a million American troops on, 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 on Saudi soil, considered sacred by many Muslims, the punishment inflicted on Iraq in the first Gulf War, the years of punitive sanctions which followed, America's support for and complicity with Israel in its aggression against the Palestinians against Lebanon, all these were among the motives which drove a group of dedicated men to attack America in 9 or 9-11. The, the United States has never paused to ask itself why young Muslims were ready to sacrifice their lives in order to punish it. Last page. A still more serious mistake was the American invasion and occupation of Iraq, largely en en engineered by American neocons, such as Paul Wolfowitz and his colleagues in the Pentagon. Exploiting the shock of 9-11 and the trauma this inflicted on American opinion, their ambition was to reshape and restructure the Middle East to the advantage of Israel and the United States, beginning with the destruction of Iraq. It was an insane adventure which bankrupted America and destroyed its reputation. Finally, yet another mistake made by the United States, in my view, was to allow its relationship with Israel to get out of hand. To many observers, it seems, it would seem, that pro-Israeli interests have sapped America's freedom of action from the inside, having captured American decision-making institutions and opinion-forming bodies, they have managed to take control of America's Middle East policy, with, as a result, some of the disasters we have seen. It remains to be seen whether the up upheavals in the region we are now witnessing, the overthrow of pro-American regimes, the assertion of the popular will, whether these might stimulate a rethinking of American policy. Certainly, a more balanced American approach to Israel and its Arab neighbors, and a resolution at long last of the Arab-Israeli conflict could restore some confidence in the United States and arrest the catastrophic decline in its influence. But judging from statements by 
President Obama overnight and, and Secretary Clinton and others, the United States still can't see its way out of the puzzle it has created for itself. It proclaims its faith in democracy and has urged Egypt and other Arab states to reform and democratize while knowing that any real move in this direction would likely to imperil its interests and its policies. In, in the absence of regional peace, truly democratic elections in the Arab world and certainly in Egypt are almost certain to bring to power governments hostile to the United States and to its Israeli ally. That is the dilemma the United States faces and the situation it's likely to confront in the months and years ahead. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for that very interesting uh, presentation on uh, developments in Egypt and the ramification for both the domestic and regional context and following up with a rather extensive critique of the U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. Our last uh, but not least speaker is Professor, Professor Avi Schlein. Uh, he's a fellow of St. Anthony's College and a professor of international relations at the University of Oxford. He was the Alistair Buchan reader in international relations from 1987 to 1996. He then became director of graduate studies in international relations first between 93 and 95 and then again between 98 and 2001. In 2006 uh, he was elected a fellow of the British Academy. Professor Schleim was born in Baghdad in 1945 and grew up in Israel. He completed an MSc in International Relations at LSE in 1970 and was a lecturer in then reader in politics at the University of Reading from, 19, from 1970 to 1987. Over to you, Professor Schleim. Thank you very much for your kind introduction. Um, it's a great pleasure for me to be here on two counts. First of all, as you just heard, I'm an LSC alumnus. I, was, I did the one-year MSc in international relations here between 1969 and 1970. That's the only training that I've ever had in international relations, but it served me well in my subsequent career. And the other reason that I'm particularly pleased to be here with you uh, is that uh, a new center is being launched at the LASE, the Middle East Center, and that is a major watershed in the history of the school as far as I'm concerned. And I'm especially pleased to be on, with you on this occasion because the director of the new center, Professor Fawaz Gerges, is a very old friend of mine, a colleague, and a former student. In fact, he was my first PhD student 
at Oxford when I arrived in 1987, um, and I followed his subsequent career with great admiration and interest. Um, Professor Georges reminded me that our, at our very first tutorial at the Middle East Center at St. Anthony's College, I said to him that he and I are from the region, and therefore we shoulder a special responsibility when it comes to analyzing the international relations of the re region. Most Western scholars look at the Middle East from the perspective of Western foreign policy towards the region, and we, as uh, sons of the region, ought to look at the region itself, at the local powers, um, and put them in their proper context, historical context. We need to understand their history, their politics, and their culture. In short, we need to look at um, the international relations of the Middle East, not just from the outside looking in, but from the inside looking out. Um, I've learned a huge amount from Professor Gerges over the years. Um, there is an old rabbinical saying which I've just made up. <laughs> <laughs> that above all, I've learned from my students. And this is certainly true in his case. And I'm confident that under his uh, leadership, the new Middle East Center here would distinguish itself both on the teaching front in uh, training real scholars with a real understanding of the region and that it would produce distinguished scholarship on the region as well. The key to the international relations uh, of the Middle East, or to the geopolitics of the Middle East is the relationship between outside powers and local powers. The preeminent Western um, uh, powers in the region uh, since the First World War have been first Britain and then America. America uh, Britain in its time was a very effective imperial power in the Middle East. And there is a classic book by Elizabeth Monroe called Britain's Moment in the Middle East. Professor Ayub, before this session started, reminded me of that book when he, he said that when he arrived many years ago as a visiting fellow to the Middle East Center at St. Anthony's College, the director was Albert Hurani. And Albert Huran, and he came not to write, but to read a lot. He had a year there. And uh, Albert Hurani said to him, um, there are two books on the Middle East that you should read. One is Elizabeth Monroe, Britain's Moment in the Middle East, and the other is Patrick Seale, um, The Struggle for Syria. The United States is completely unfit to be an imperial power in the Middle East, which is why its record over the last decade has been so disastrous. Uh, America is unfit to be an imperial power in this region for three reasons. All uh, three begin with I. Um, ign ignorance, incompetence, and ideology. Neoconservative ideology. 
So that's the broad context. And uh, now I'd like to um, turn and um, discuss some of the contributions that were put forward today by Professor Mohammed Ayoub. Um, first of all, I agree with his main thesis, which is that the powers to watch in the greater Middle East are Turkey and Iran, not Egypt and Saudi Arabia. A few words about each of these two emerging regional powers. Turkey is important because it provides an example of moderate Islam. It shows that if Islam, Islamists come to power, they don't necessarily uh, abolish uh, democracy. That it is possible for Islamists, modern Islamists, to be incorporated within a function, functioning democratic uh, system. So the experience of Turkey gives the lie that Islamists, that Islam is incompatible with democracy and that Islamists would um, overthrow democracy once they came to power. The slogan that is usually used about them to discredit them is uh, one man, one vote, one time. Uh, the second reason for um, Turkey's uh, growing in, uh, influence is that it is independent. It's not a stooge uh, or a client of any uh, uh, superpower. It represents its own people and its own values. Uh, one aspect of this independence was the alliance that Turkey had with Israel, which was of huge strategic importance for Israel, but Israel simply blew it. Uh, the last incident was the Israeli attack on the Mavi Marmara, on the, the boat carrying um, peace activists to, um, to uh, Gaza, and that strained relations between Israel and Turkey to breaking point. So Turkey now has a lot of credibility in the uh, Arab world for its independence stand. Uh, Iran is the other emerging regional uh, power. Partly, it is so influential today because of Western mistakes. The, uh, America always used to treat the Shah of Iran as the policeman of the Gulf. That was his uh, place within Pax Americana. And the people of the region, the people of Iran, don't like have, don't like, didn't like having a policeman imposed on them by a foreign power. Uh, then there is the ignorance. ignorance behind Western policy towards Iran, which has been very damaging. One example of this is Tony Blair. And when I say neoconservatives, I include Tony Blair, and in some ways he's the worst of the bunch. Uh, a British journalist told me that he interviewed Tony Blair 
when he was prime minister. The interview took place, as it happens, in one of the palaces of President Mubarak. Uh, in the interview, in Sharm el-Sheikh, I think it was, uh, and in the interview, the journalist said to Tony Blair, but you, you have to remember that we overthrew a democratically elected uh, Iranian uh, prime minister. And Blair looked completely blank, and he said, yes, uh, it was um, Mossadegh in 1953. MI6 and, um, and the CIA overthrew him. And uh, Tony Blair carried on uh, banging on about the Iranian threat, how Iran destabilized Iraq, how uh, we, having disarmed Iraq, we now need to disarm Iran. And after a while, he, he turned to this journalist and he said, uh, when, when, did you, when did you say this was? And the journalist said, 1953. And Blair said, and they are still banging on about it? <laughs> Um, the greatest Anglo-American mistake was, of course, the uh, invasion of Iraq in 2003. From today's perspective, it's clear that the war on Iraq was a catastrophe at every level. And one of the unforeseen consequences, although it should have been foreseen, if the leaders had any understanding of the region, but one of the unforeseen consequences was of the invasion of Iraq was that uh, since Iraq has 60% Shi'is, uh, the result would be that the Shi'is would come out on top and that their affinity would be towards Iran. So one of the main consequ unforeseen consequences of the war in Iraq was the rise of um, Iranian power and also the reassertion of Shi'i influence uh, in the region, a Shi'i awakening. Uh, I now want to, to turn to comment on um, the talk, the most interesting talk by uh, Patrick Steele. Patrick also is an old friend and a model to me of writing about the Middle East. Ten years ago or so, when I was writing what became uh, The Iron Wall, a book on the Arab-Israeli conflict, uh, Patrick said to me, make it interesting. And I knew exactly what he meant. He meant, don't write like an academic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and another useful piece of advice that Patrick has given me is to disregard criticism which is not legitimate. Uh, I am a new historian or a revisionist Israeli historian, and anyone who criticizes Israeli, uh, Israel gets a lot of flack. And uh, when I was writing you know, critical stuff about Israel's history, I got more than my, share, my fair share of flack. And Patrick's advice was, um, the dogs bark and the caravan passes. Uh, Patrick began his talk by saying that the protesters in the Middle East from Tunis to um, Cairo and Amman and beyond have 
demands in common, aims in common. Political, they want political reform, they want economic opportunity, and they, they want social justice. Above all, they want dignity, individual dignity and national dignity. One of the slogans of the protesters in Tahrir Square is Karama Wataniya, national dignity. And this Arab people cannot have if the rulers are perceived to be stooges or clients of the West. This was certainly uh, uh, the case. Um, the, the Tunisian president was seen as a client of America, and so is Pre President Hosni Mubarak. So one of the grievances that is common to all the protesters is a grievance against the ruling elite, against their rulers. They would like to, st to replace them. They would like um, uh, Hosni Mubarak to step down, to go away. The background to this um, uh, protest against Arab rulers is uh, a tacit deal, an unwritten agreement between America and Arab dictators, a whole long list of them. And um, America has always sacrificed or pursued security and stability at the expense of human rights and democracy and freedom. And America, by sacrificing freedom for security, has ended up by having neither. Tunisia was a good example. Uh, Egypt today is going the same way. With a lot of the hostility towards um, Mubarak also sheds off in, uh, into hostility towards the United States. Part of the problem in American policy uh, globally, and not just, to, just towards the region, was that the neocons um, developed the dominant uh, terrorist narrative. They saw world politics through the prism of the fight against terror. That was a mistake from the beginning. You don't have a global war on terror because terror is not an enemy. It's a technique of um, warfare. But the result was to um, uh, the result was that Arab dictators were able to say to America, look, I'm up against um, an Islamic opposition. They are the real threat. They are the common enemy to both of us. If you want me to deal with them, I'll deal with them in my own way, but don't lecture me about uh, democracy and human rights. And the last major theme that I would like to address, which was touched on by both speakers, is America and Israeli hegemony in the region, which is one of the principal sources of instability and insecurity and violence and protest uh, in the Middle East. As Patrick Seale said, the 1979 
peace treaty between Egypt and Israel was critical to American policy. That treaty was the cornerstone of American policy towards uh, the region. And Husni Mubarak was the main enforcer of that peace treaty. When President Sadat was assassinated in 1981, uh, it was not un at all unlikely that Egypt would renounce the unpopular uh, peace treaty with Israel. Hosni Mubarak sent a message to Menachem Begin, the then Israeli Prime Minister, to say he will respect the treaty and he will respect all of the previous understandings between Egypt and um, Israel. And this is what he has done throughout his term of office. During the second Palestinian Intifada, he actually cooperated with Israel in containing the Intifada and in stopping it from spreading beyond um, uh, Israel's borders and beyond the borders of Gaza. So as Patrick pointed out, there's been um, a consensus, an agreement, cooperation between America, Israel, and um, Egypt to contain Palestinian nationalism and especially to contain Hamas, to isolate it, to weaken it, and even to try and overthrow it by uh, military force. This is why um, um, America is so unpopular in um, so many of the Arab countries. As Patrick pointed out, there have been two main consequences of the American commitment to Israel, the unconditional support for Israel. One is that Israel has been able to act with impunity against other Arab states after it had, uh, it had um, uh, reached the peace agreement with um, Egypt and disengaged Egypt from the conflict. Israel launched the first invasion of Lebanon in 1982, a second Lebanon war in 2006, and the Gaza war of 2008. And the other, um, the other consequence of um, uh, uncritical American support for Israel was that the Palestinians have not been able to realize the right to national self-determination, to freedom and independence. And the Palestine papers, which were released in the last couple of weeks by Al Jazeera and by The Guardian, uh, prove this conclusively, that there was a Palestinian partner for peace. The Palestinian leaders made far-reaching concessions, uh, but there was no, no uh, but the Israelis, nothing would satisfy the Israelis. The Israelis were intent on maintaining their control of, over the West Bank. And another revelation of the Palestine Papers is that uh, America and Britain helped to turn the Palestinian Authority in the, the West Bank into a police state. Um, they are, there was the national unity government, which included Hamas and, um, uh, and Fatah. Uh, it was a very effective government, which was ready to negotiate a long-time uh, ceasefire with Israel. But the Americans, the aggressive neoconservatives, and Israel killed that um, government. 
government. The irony today is that when uh, the Arab world is in turmoil and uh, dictatorships are, um, are shaking, the one area that is stable is Palestine, the West Bank. Uh, Palestine had the only really genuine democracy in the Arab world until it was destroyed by, uh, by Israel and um, America. Uh, and now um, the, the Palestinians cannot um, join in this move towards freedom, the surge uh, towards uh, freedom, because the government, the Palestinian Authority, is seen to be a collaborator of the Israelis and the uh, Americans. Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel has commented on the events in Egypt. He said that, once again, that Israel lives in a very tough and unstable neighborhood. This is so, but Israel is the toughest uh, block, uh, the, the toughest um, kid on the block. And uh, the region, the neighborhood is unstable to a very large extent because of Israel's denial of freedom and uh, independence to the Palestinians. The tectonic plates are, are shifting throughout the region. The conservative Arab regimes and the allies of America are in danger of falling like a row of dominoes. The new beacons in the region for young people and old people is democracy and freedom. And unless America and Israel mend their ways and learn from their own mistakes, they are in danger of ending on the wrong side of history. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Schleim, uh, for that absolutely fascinating contribution. Uh, for those of you who may be on the way out, uh, I would uh, announce uh, that there is going to be a reception at the end of this uh, seminar at 5.30 in the old building at the uh, senior common room. I'll give specific instructions how to get there at the end, but it's just worth keeping that uh, piece of information in mind. I'm sure you will agree that uh, between them, our three speakers have covered a vast array of very, very interesting uh, issues and topics relating to the Middle East, from Egypt, uh, Turkey, and Iran, to the US, and of course, Israel. And they've done so in a fashion that has been extremely relevant and lively to our uh, concerns. Now, we do have just over half an hour for uh, questions and answers. And in order to maximize uh, what we have, I'm going to ask for brief uh, questions. I'm going to take question, three questions at a time. If I can ask you to kindly uh, put your hand up uh, when you're invited. Just say very briefly who you are and uh, also try and keep your question as briefly as possible. I do believe we have roaming microphones. So, uh, okay, I will ask you please to, okay, 
just wait for the microphone to reach you. And then, as I said, say who you are and state your question very briefly. And if you'd like to specify uh, who in the panel uh, you would like to address your question, that would also be helpful. Yes, my, my name is David Glue, and I just um, saw the advertisement for the meeting a week ago. Um, Professor Gerges had it um, at, the, uh, Nash, at the new academic building, and it was a very big meeting. But anyway, my question is for Prof Professor Ayub. Uh, I think Turkey has two problems. Turkey's official goal is to join the EU, but it's inconceivable the EU will allow that to happen. Secondly, dams on the Euphrates and Tigris are reducing water downriver, and that will be especially a disaster for Iraq. Therefore, surely it's it's, um, Turkey will never, will not be an equal of Iran, is not an equal of Iran, and once Egypt, even, has, even with a military government, Egypt will be far more important than um, Turkey. Thank you for that. Uh, any other questions? Please. Just wait for the microphone. Testing, testing. Valerie York, formerly of the London School of Economics. I'd like to thank all the speakers for their, their very interesting contributions. I wonder whether we could take advantage of having Patrick here today and his enormous experience and writings on Syria. Um, Syria is an enigma for all of us, I think, possibly even for Patrick. But Patrick, could you elaborate a little bit on how President Assad may um, respond to what's going on in the Middle East and what particular um, bag of responses we might see? Um, is this going to be regarded as an opportunity by him? Is he going to continue to keep rather quiet and wait for the right moment? Thank you, very much. Thank you for that. And there's a question. Over there. Um, this is primarily for Professor Schleim. Um You mentioned the dominoes may be falling. Can you comment on what you think the US and Israel's response to that will be? Because I fear that the elephant in the room of uh, Israeli aggression towards Iran has kind of been circumvented by or kind of ignored due to what's happening in Tunisia and uh, Egypt. Just say briefly who you are. Hi, I'm Benedict Sahangi and I'm a student here. Excellent. Thank you very much. Okay, uh, we're going to pause now and I'm going to invite uh, our speakers uh, to address these three questions and then we'll come back for another round of questions. Uh, Professor Ayub, can I start with you? You, you, you can, you can, yeah, you can you just use the... Uh, the, the Turkish... The Turkish uh, candidacy for membership in the European Union is a very interesting question, and Turkey has been wrestling with this for a long time. Uh, the, but it's not the be-all and end-all of Turkish foreign policy. Uh, the current government uh, and the, particularly the vision that uh, Foreign Minister Daoutoglu uh, has put forward is that Turkey is not, well, two things. One. That Turkey's entry into the into the European Union is important, but that Turkey wants to enter the European Union on its own terms. As Adaudolu mentioned, we are not just a bridge between the East and the West. We are the center around which the East and the West revolve in this region. Uh, and so this is a very different uh, self-image than the one that the Kemalists 
who incidentally have now turned against the European Union because of the uh, support of the European Union, the Copenhagen criteria for democratization and so on and so forth. But the original vision that the Kemalists had of the European Union was that we were uncivilized and they were civilized and therefore becoming like the Europeans and eventually then joining the Union would mean the stamp of civilization on us. I mean, that's a very different vision uh, from what the, the, the current Turkish political elite uh, now harbors. Secondly, there's also uh, a, well, Turkey also realizes, and that's implicit in this, in, in, in this uh, formulation that we are the center, not merely the bridge, uh, is that the Middle East with its resources and Turkey's cultural and religious connections to the Middle East is extremely important for Turkey. Uh, the Middle East has become a very major market uh, for Turkey uh, as well. And the, and, and the Middle East, therefore, and of course the public opinion in Turkey, despite the fact that uh, Turkey has tried, you know, the, the earlier regimes or governments in Turkey have tried to turn Turkey westward, the public opinion in Turkey still identifies very much uh, with what we call the Middle East or the Muslim world in general. So Turkey sees itself as an integral part of the Muslim world and cannot turn its back on it. Uh, and as, as, as again uh, has been pointed out over and over again by Turkish analysts, that Turkey's importance to the West increases as its importance in the East increases. Moreover, there has been a turning away. There's, there's been a, uh, from this vision of joining the European Union, there's been a lot of dissatisfaction at the slow pace uh, at, at which uh, this, this has been uh, progressing. Uh, the AK party is very interested in continuing the negotiations for accession, probably not so much because it, it, because it knows that it will finally get into the Union, but because these, the, 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 um, uh, the negotiations for accession means that there is the democracy sword of the Copenhagen criteria hanging over the military. And the government, the civilian government, can use that as a tool to bring the, the military further uh, under control. Uh, but there is at the same time a feeling amongst the Turkish elite uh, that um, uh, the European Union will probably never let Turkey in. And this was summarized to me several years ago by a senior official uh, in the Turkish Foreign Ministry in Ankara who is actually part of the team dealing with the European Union negotiations, whose first name, second name I will not mention, but his first name was Mehmet, uh, which is the Turkish version of Muhammad, and my first name is Muhammad. And finally, after two hours of discussion about the pros and cons of entry into the European Union, he turned to me and said, Dr. Ayub, all this is fine, academic discussion, but you and I know that we will not be allowed into the European Union for just one reason, because my first name is the same as yours. Thank you for that. Uh, Can we now go on to uh, Patrick? Uh, question on Syria. Uh, uh, to respond to Val sorry. To respond to Valerie York's uh, question. Syria is not a rich country. It has. Am I making that noise? Just, just, <laughs> no, no. We're getting there. There you are. Ah, oh, that's better. <laughs> I felt rather guilty for a moment. <laughs> Um, it faces severe economic problems. Uh, the, the population explosion I mentioned uh, uh, in my talk is one of them. Uh, it's suffering from a declining oil output. Its oil output is down to about 360,000 barrels a day from about twice that amount a few years ago. 
it has made great strides in its tourism, but that still hasn't produced the, really, the revenue it would like to have. It's suffering from a switch from a state-controlled economy, as many of these countries, as Egypt itself, of course, to a what they call a, a social market economy. Now, this is quite a tricky conversion from one to the other. It has resulted in a few people making a lot of money, but it's also resulted in the impoverishment of the old middle class. And, and this is a factor of great instability and, and grievance in the country as a whole. Now, I believe that President Bashar al-Assad wants to build a modern state, but the ever-present threat of an attack by Israel on Lebanon, on Hezbollah, uh, which might drag in Syria, has given great power to his security apparatus, whether he likes it or not. Their advice to him is don't yield an inch because you have to keep tight control in these difficult times. Now, of course, he's been 10 years in power, and power inevitably corrupts, and the fact that you start to feel that you're indispensable and so forth, he no doubt uh, suffers from a bit of that too. He has been successful in the Lebanon in restoring his influence there, even though his forces, as you know, were driven out of Lebanon after the assassination of Rafiq Hariri in, in, in Beirut. Now, the security of Lebanon is vital to Syria. You only have to look at the map and see where, where Damascus is in southern Syria. It's about 20 kilometers from the Lebanese frontier. I was talking to a, a, a young researcher here just before, and I was saying to him that a hostile government in, Damascus, in Beirut, hostile government in Beirut is like a gun at the head of Damascus, and this is something they cannot tolerate. Uh, uh, they used to have a, 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 a vice president called Abdul Halim Khaddam, and he had a rather clever phrase. He used to say, Lebanon has only two neighbors, Israel and Syria. It must choose. Now, uh, uh, as I think I mentioned in my talk, Syria is a member of this so-called axis, the Tehran, Damascus, Hezbollah axis. This is its lifeline. Now, bearing that in mind, there are two questions which I think we have to make, take note of. You know, there's a lot of talk in Israel that they should start with Syria in the peace process, remove Syria from the equation, force Syria to cut its ties with, uh, with Iran. Now, the questions are, this, are these. Can Syria make a separate peace with Israel without some substantial progress on the, on the, on the Palestinian front? This is why Sadat in Egypt was pilloried, because he made a separate peace. It seems to me that Syria, with its nationalist stance and ideology, cannot make a separate peace. Now, President Bashar has produced a sort of formula. He said that peace could be a two-stage affair. He said, of course, if Israel were to offer us the Golan, we would take it, naturally. We might agree on a... On a, on a situation of non-belligerence, but we could not normalize and have a proper peace until there was peace for the Palestinians as well. Now that's very important, I think. He has, he has produced this, this, this formula, uh, which has a tinge of a separate peace about it, but he's tried to correct his aim, of course, at the same time. He wants the Golan back, back, but not at the expense of his ideology, of his nationalist reputation. Secondly, can he break with Iran? 
What Syrians say to me is, if Israel were to separate or to cut its links with the United States, we'd be very happy to cut our, our links with Iran. So the, the, the Iranian relationship for Syria is a 30-year-old strategic partnership. They don't agree on everything. There are a lot of people in Syria who don't like it, who feel that the Iranians are having too much influence on Syrian policy and so forth. But nevertheless, they know that this is their lifeline. And, and of course, Syria and Hezbollah are Iran's forward defenses. So the three of them, as I said in my talk, stand or fall together. So these are really the, the key questions about Syria's foreign policy whether it can make peace and under what conditions and of course many people are urging it certainly the Israelis perhaps have tried in the past to make a separate peace, they can't do it there has to be a global peace and, and of course this is what Obama said when he came to power he talked about a global settlement involving Syria, Lebanon and the Palestinians and secondly you can't dictate a country's foreign policy you can't say you can't have ties with Iran serious ties with Iran were, were, are older than the emergence of, of, of the Islamic Republic. The opposition to the Shah was in Damascus. So this has become a, a, an umbilical of very, very close ties. Now, the fact that Turkey has now joined in, this has been a, a matter of some relief for the Syrians because it has acted as a sort of counterweight for their relationship with Iran, which was slightly suffocating on occasions. And that Turkey has been very, very vigorous, as our speakers have mentioned, in forging ties with all the Arab countries. You can now travel from Turkey without a visa, and vice versa, to Syria, to Lebanon, to Jordan. Uh, to, to Turkey has become a major actor on the, on the Arab scene. And, and, of course, the fact that it's hostile to Israel has greatly strengthened the anti-Israeli camp and anti-American camp. Thank you, so, Patrick. I wonder if we can leave it there. I'm sure there will be other similar questions. Thanks. I do have another go. Uh, Professor Schlem, uh, would you be happy to deal with the last question on the U.S.-Israeli dominance? The question was, the dominoes are falling in the Arab world. What should be the American and the Israeli response? And um, the first thing that America and Israel should do is to end the humbug, to end the hypocrisy, to abandon the double standards and to be more honest because Israel has always tried to market itself as an island of democracy in a sea of authoritarianism and America's support for Israel has been to a very um, significant extent based on the fact that Israel is a democracy. Uh, but when you look at the record of these two countries towards Arab democracy, you will see, as I was saying earlier, um, that they've done very, very little, if anything, to promote democracy in the Arab world. They were on the side of the dictators. Um, and Israel has done quite a lot to undermine uh, Arab democracy, especially democracy in the Palestinian territories. Jordan is one of the dominoes that is wobbling at the moment. And yesterday, King Abdullah II fired his government. This is precisely what is wrong with Jordan. 
that the king can fire the government. <laughs> in this country, the queen cannot fire a government. In Jordan, there, it's an authoritarian system where the king has absolute power and the king hires and fires. So the government in Jordan is a shock absorber. Whenever there is trouble, and now there is very serious popular protest in Jordan, um, the king um, fires the government and appoints another government. That's not democracy. That's not a constitutional monarchy. And the trouble with America is that it has double standards on the question of democracy. America has always pushed democracy um, against on, on its uh, opponents, on um, Iran, on Syria. It hasn't tried to promote democracy on the part of its allies, like Jordan, Egypt, or Saudi Arabia, or the, the Gulf states. Um, and what should Israel's response be? To try and be part of the region, because Israel isn't part of the region. It's alienated from the region. It's had countless opportunities to integrate into the region. But the Israeli agenda is not coexistence, um, and it is domination, regional uh, domination. What should America do? The key issue to tackle is Palestinian independence and a Palestinian state. This is the issue that really matters. And here, the pronounced asymmetry of power between Israel on the one hand and the Palestinians on the other hand is so pronounced that only America can push Israel into a two-state solution. It can do so by redressing the balance, by, by throwing its weight on the side of the weaker side, whereas what America has been doing all along especially over the last decade, as the Palestinian papers show so clearly, America has been giving unconditional, unlimited support for Israel uh, and not um, standing for Palestinian um, rights. So a solution to the Palestinian problem would be a major contribution. Um, and it's, it's not a panacea. It wouldn't all the other problems of the region would not vanish overnight, but there will be no peace and no security and no stability um, in the region until there is just a just solution to the Palestinian problem. Thank you very much for that. Um, we're going to open up for another three rounds. Uh, lady in the front row here in the center. I can see a lot of hands uh, up, but you have to be patient, and in fact I'm going to ask our speakers to be equally concise in their answers, just to give everybody uh, as much as possible a chance to put questions to this very interesting panel. But we're doing our best, so please go ahead. Uh, Barbara Allen Robertson, um, alumna of LSE. Um, since um, Valerie asked Patrick about Syria, I think it would be interesting to know what, whether, what uh, impact you think these events are going to have on Saudi Arabia, for instance. Uh, there is a view that um, Saudi Arabia and Egypt are key um, found, uh, of the foundation of U.S. policy there. So uh, 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 
uh, I would be interested to know your your view of the impact of that. And also, can, can the report. It, it to yes, the report that um, the WikiLeaks chap Aswaj had given to Israel all of the cables on WikiLeaks uh, to uh, had has given the cables to to Israel and they are not exposed to the public. They were not handed over to the Guardian. Any views about that? Okay, thank you. Uh, question over there. Yes, lady in the blue. I haven't forgotten about the uh, people upstairs who will come to you as well. Thank you very much. Mona uh, Al-Qui, the King's College War Studies. Uh, my question is actually to Patrick um, with regard to Egypt. You've correctly stated the three open questions um, towards Egyptian future, the military, Muslim Brothers, and Baradei. And I'm not here searching for the correct answer, but I'm wondering what are the indicators, you think, that might help us reach um, a question to Egypt's future? Is it the military and is it the U.S. Um, that wants a stable um, Middle East? Is it the Baradei and having a deal going on? Thank you. Okay, for the third question, we're going upstairs. Uh, the gentleman in the front, yeah. Can you use the microphone? Anas Tirask, I'm a student here in London. You mentioned the demographic causes and the socioeconomic causes of <clears throat> that have predisposed Egypt and Tunisia um, to the current events. Now, these aren't likely to change in the short term, and how are they going to continue to affect stability in the region? The demographic... Yes, yes, the dimension. population growth and the, the high rates of poverty in the country. Is that uh, directed towards anybody in particular? Uh, to Dr. Seal, since uh, he uh, I dealt think you uh, ended up with a lot of questions, but can you keep uh, them short? Yeah, please. Yeah, why don't you start? Yeah. Should I start? Saudi Arabia, first question. I'll be very quick. Um, in Saudi Arabia, I don't think there's an immediate domestic threat. Uh, though they had some trouble in Jeddah recently, you might have seen with floods and a lot of people complaining the municipality didn't take adequate uh, uh, measures to improve drainage and so forth. But these are domestic issues, but I don't think there's any threat to the regime. What Saudi Arabia is particularly worried about now is Yemen. Yemen has given problems to Saudi Arabia right from the beginning, from the, uh, from the 1920s. And in 1934 they fought a war and then endless, endless problems. Uh, a, a, a very distinguished uh, Saudi once said to me, Yemen is like a, is like a thorn stuck in our throat. Now, they, 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 they watched the Yemeni situation very, very closely. And if there were a change of regime there, because they have supported Ali Abdullah Saleh, the president, they don't like him very much. They don't like a united Yemen, which might be a rival to them. So they're worried about the South, about secession of the South producing a socialist regime. So they are what their, their main concern is the Arabian Peninsula. They are the dominant force in the Arabian Peninsula. They, they, have no see, they, they see no threat from the Gulf Sheikhdoms, no threat from Oman, but Yemen is the problem. So that's, that's one question, very briefly. Uh, secondly, someone asked me over there about uh, Egypt's future, uh, who would determine it, would it be the army, would it be the Muslim Brothers, would it be Baradai? Now, the opposition in uh, uh, Egypt is unfortunately not united. There are many strands to it. The Muslim Brothers is one big strand. 
they have fallen in behind Baradai and said they would lend their weight to them. But there are many other movements. There's a so-called 6th of April movement, which you recall was, was uh, hark back to the, 19, to the 2008 great strikes at Mahal al-Kubra and in the te- great textile plants of, of, that, of that region. Uh, there, there's also another group called uh, the, the We Are All uh, Khaled Saeeds. Khaled Saeed was a young uh, Egyptian beaten to death by the police. So that's another strand. There was the WAF, the old independence party, much diminished but still there. There are many, many strands. And at the moment, there isn't a single personality who has managed to unite them all. Baradai lived abroad for some 30 years. He's not well known. He's a man of a certain age. He lacks a certain charisma. He's a wonderful chap. But I'm not sure that he's the man who could really unite the opposition. And the opposition has said, get rid of Mubarak first, and then we'll say what our program is. Well, that might be a bit late. And, and as you know, overnight, the regime has been m- mustering its supporters. And that we, we haven't heard the latest news because we've been here, but there were clashes already between pro and anti-Mubarak. The army is, in my view, the key. We don't know what's going on inside the army. But there must be a big debate among the officers. There may be, some people say, there is a free officers movement of slightly junior officers. You see, the officer corps has been tremendously cosseted and privileged by the Mubarak regime. All this American money was not only spent on weapons. They've had wonderful houses. They've got uh, every privilege you can imagine. So there may be some officers there who don't like the neutralization of Egypt, the fact that, and particularly, I think, the collusion with Israel against the Gaza Strip. This was a cause, I think, of immense anger and embarrassment to many uh, Egyptians. The other question nobody knows, really, is the extent to which the Muslim brothers have penetrated the Egyptian army, which is certainly possible. They are all Muslims, after all. So these are the questions we don't know about. The, 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 the question mark about the army, uh, the, the, the lack of un- unity among the opposition forces, and of course the considerable strength, latent strength of the regime, the, the, the slogan, chaos or me, which, which, uh, which Mubarak has been saying. He's made some clever concessions. He said, I won't stand again. My, my son won't stand again. Uh, in, in September, I'll be gone. Uh, but this is the continuation of the regime in different form. So the question really is the survival of the regime and of its international alignments. These are the key questions. Now, Just a few thoughts last, maybe on the demogra- demographic. Yes, yes yeah. very quickly on the demographic. Of course, the problem can only get worse and worse. The, the, the Arab governments have not controlled their population. I'll tell you a very quick story. When I was a journalist, one of my most exciting trips was I, I followed Joe and Lai in the 60s across Africa, and we ended up in Mogadishu. And in, in all these stops over some weeks, I got to talk to him and get to know, know him a bit. And when we arrived in Mogadishu, I remember I was in a small room with him, and He said to me, I advised President Nasser, he said, to adopt our one-child-per-family policy. But Nasser said to me, I can't do it because of the patriarchal nature of Egyptian society. But also, he said, I need young hands to pick the cotton. And I remember Joe and I saying this, I need young hands to pick the cotton. So that was the great mistake, you see. They should have introduced family planning at a much earlier stage. 
The idea that you know, if you have lots of people in your country, you become stronger. On the contrary, you become weaker. And Egypt is just wrestling with huge social and economic problems, which can only get worse. They, they add a million people per year to their population. Who, who can? They have to run to stand still. Very briefly on Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Just I have a couple of comments on Saudi Arabia. Well, one of them uh, points towards the fact that um, uh, the Saudi situation is so different from uh, the rest of the well, the Fertile Crescent or Egypt because of the fact that it is uh, it's it's what we call a, rent, a rentier state because of the oil uh, wealth and that you know it, it's sort of the Saudi system stands the the uh, the idiom no taxation without representation on its head uh, by uh, sort of converting it into no representation because no taxation. <laughs> so that's, that's in a way a safety valve for the Saudi regime because it can dole out uh, those, uh, the, the, the monies. But on the other hand, the negative di dimension that people do not recognize, there are two. One is that despite the apparent um, uh, picture of a unified state, Saudi Arabia is basically a family fiefdom imposed by the Nejdis, the Saudis from the Nejd, on a very diverse people. Uh, the Hejazis to this day, those who have come across, resent Nejdi domination. And of course the Shia in the east sit on the oil wealth. So there, are, there could be potentially for superior tendencies in the kingdom uh, that we don't fully recognize because of the opaque nature of the system. And then finally, Wahhabism is no longer a unitary ideology. Wahhabism was, is the legitimizing ideology for the Saudi regime, this, a status quo ideology. But as we have seen over the last two decades, there are at least two and maybe more forms of Wahhabism. There is the Wahhabism from above, of the establishment that supports the regime, but there is the Wahhabism from below, the new Wahhabis who are, who are socially uh, and culturally conservative but politically quite radical, have been radicalized by their hybridization uh, with the Qutbist, ide uh, Qutbist ideology imported from Egypt. And the, this, the Wahhabism from below has become the mortal enemy of the Wahhabism from above. So there are all sorts of strands that are at work in Saudi Arabia. It's very difficult to work out, again, because of the opaque nature of the system as, as how all this is going to turn out. Do you want to make some brief remarks? Or? Just one, Please. one comment about Saudi Arabia. In 2002, Saudi Arabia put forward a peace plan um, calling for a two-state solution. Uh, all 22 members of the Arab League endorsed the Saudi peace plan. The Saudi peace plan was a landmark. It offered Israel peace and normalization, not only with its immediate Arab neighbors, with the confrontation states, but peace and normalization with the entire Arab world. Uh, Israel ignored the Saudi peace plan and launched a campaign um, to reoccupy the West Bank cities. This was in 2002. And America didn't do very much uh, to prod Israel to address the Saudi peace plan. I was asked earlier, what should America, what should, uh, how should America and Israel address the present crisis in the region? One way to address it is to put the Saudi peace plan back on the table uh, and turn to Israel to engage with this peace plan. Thank you for that. We are uh, running against the clock. I'm going to allow for two final questions, and then uh, we will conclude at uh, 5.25. I'm going to go, yes, this side, uh, please. Go ahead. Yes, yes. 
Um, having heard convincing argument of the decline of U.S. influence in the Middle East, um, the question that I was thinking was, is this creating a vacuum um, for a new influential superpower um, which goes above and beyond the greater players recognized here today, um, Turkey and Iran? And if so, what are your thoughts on which country it would be? Is there any possibility whatsoever for China increasing their um, econo economic influence given perhaps the projects they've had recently with Israel or tried to have and elsewhere in the region? Okay, thank you for that question. And finally, we go this side, uh, Sahar. <laughs> You'll be fit uh, over there. And then uh, I will be asking you to make your responses very, very short uh, as we have to leave the room at 5.25. Thank Sorry. you. Sahar Rad, uh, United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. Uh, my question is actually related to the economy as well. That um, I, I would like uh, Mr. Ayub's opinion on what would be the impact of this change in the uh, geostrategic landscape on the economy of the region, particularly because the economy has, in many cases, made the region vulnerable to all these outside interventions, to put it very crudely. And uh, the region has one of the lowest rates of regional economic integration. So what's going to be the impact of this change of um, uh, uh, position and power going more towards Iran and Turkey on um, the economic integration in the region? Thank you. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, don't more than one minute each. <laughs> okay. It's your chance to round up as well. Okay. Well, uh, uh, just half a minute back <laughs> on, the, on the China question. Uh, as you all know, China has been snapping up resources right across the world, minerals, oil, etc., etc., everywhere. Uh, probably in Afghanistan, if the Americans don't pull out quick, quickly, the, the Chinese will, will, will snap it all up. Now, they have close relations with Iran, for example, import a lot of oil from there. But they don't bother with bases. The United States have all these bases across the world, what I call the militarization of the policy. Now, this is a tremendous liability. Why doesn't the United States have an over-the-horizon policy as it used to, with aircraft carriers and so forth? It doesn't need these major American bases in Arab territories, which are a source of provocation. They, 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 their, their military budget is something like $750 billion a year, which is an obscene figure. So. Uh, I would suggest that they should take a leaf from the, out, out of the Chinese book and, uh, and think more about econ econ economic relations and less about the militarization of their policy, which really arouse great hostility in the region. Thank you. Professor Ayub? Yeah, in response to that question about uh, the, um, uh, the, the, the withdrawal, not so much the withdrawal, but the recession of American, the gradual recession of American power and what it's going to fill the vacuum. I think there is no God-given law that one must always have a superpower filling all regional vacuums. Um, and, and my argument would be that major regional powers or countries like Turkey and Iran would in a way jostle for position and power in, in, in the region, cooperating and competing at the same time. And I think Turkey and Iran, and Turkey particularly, is very well poised uh, for expanding its influence in the region, even at the cost uh, of the of the United States, uh, and that takes me to the question of uh, 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 strategic resources in the Middle East and how the economy would shape. I think again, there, I mean, that, that the strategic resources, the energy resources in the Middle East, uh, in the Gulf in particular, could could in fact be considered a curse because it, they attract 
external intervention. But on the other hand, if these resources are used wisely, both in terms of cooperation within the region uh, and as countries democratize, the problem is rentier states are very difficult to democratize, particularly if they have small populations as they do in the Gulf, uh, then uh, you, you, one could envisage the emergence of a regional cooperation organization. And I think, again, Turkey will play a very central role. Turkey is already poised to become the, uh, the strategic energy hub through which the pipelines, both gas and oil, would pass between the uh, energy-rich uh, uh, countries of the Gulf and, uh, and, and Europe. So I, I see Turkey playing a very major uh, economic role, both because of its economic dynamism, but because also of its uh, of, of its geostrategically uh, uh, location and the way the, this government is, is is poised and it's promoting itself uh, as the energy hub uh, of the Middle East, connecting the Caucasus, Central Asia, the Persian Gulf, where the uh, uh, where the surplus energy is located, with the energy hungry markets of Europe, and providing in a way an alternative uh, to Russia, which has you know, where much of this, uh, these resources pass through, particularly from the Caucasus and this. And Thank you. And the final word goes to Professor Schlem. My concluding remark concerns America as a superpower. America is the strongest and the greatest military superpower in the history of the human race. It has about a thousand military bases spread all around the world. The American defense budget comes to $700 billion a year, which is more than all the defense budgets of the world put together. And um, the problem is that America, or some Americans, the, neocon, the, the neocons in particular, think that they have a God-given right to dominate the rest of um, the world, and that makes America very unpopular. America's military power isn't matched by political sense. Take Iraq, for example. America had so much military power that it thought it could, in Iraq, just invade and push all opposition, um, sweep it uh, away, topple the regime, and have its own way in Iraq. Um, the reality was very uh, different. Uh, America frittered away its military power, hard power, and it also forfeited uh, its soft power, its um, uh, holding the moral high ground. Uh, I attended a lecture recently by Patrick Seal at the British Academy, the annual lecture of the British Association of um, uh, Middle Eastern Studies. The title of the talk was America's War Against Radical Islam. And I think that is no exaggeration. And he wasn't talking just about the Middle East, but also about Afghanistan and about Pakistan. America's war against radical uh, Islam. Uh, when um, uh, President Obama made the Cairo speech, we were all very hopeful. There was the beginning of a different American approach to the Islamic world. But he hasn't fulfilled that hope. So the only hope for the future for America is if Obama would turn the rhetoric of the Cairo speech into the reality, into the substance of American foreign policy. Thank you very much. On that hopeful note, perhaps. Um, 
Apologies uh, for those of you who wanted to ask a question and we couldn't accommodate you. Uh, this has been a most lively and uh, interesting session. Thank you for your attention. Uh, and thank you to our panelists for uh, making this event possible. Thank you and congratulations to LSE Middle East Center uh, for hosting this wonderful event. I say this both uh, as a personal, uh, uh, as somebody with personal interest in the Middle East and also as somebody who directs uh, another sisterly organization down the road uh, in WC1, that's SOAS, uh, London Middle East Institute. Uh, good luck, and I'm sure there will be many other fruitful occasions like today where we will attend uh, very productive exchanges of ideas like today. As I mentioned, this session will end with a reception to which everybody is invited at the senior common room in the old building. I trust uh, you can find your way there. Turn right when you exit this building and then onto Houghton Street, the building on the left. Uh, and uh, if you still have some appetite for more uh, intellectual uh, uh, Middle Eastern uh, consumption, there is a talk by the Iranian Nobel laureate, Dr. Shirin Ebadi, at SOAS later this evening. Uh, and uh, you'll have to get there quick uh, because I'm sure this will be another very popular and uh, oversubscribed event. But it's been a pleasure to have you all here. Thank you very much. And uh, see you soon. Thanks.